Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering Nellie Bly. Oh, yeah. You didn't know who she was. No, not at the beginning. Which fat, which was like weird to me because I thought everybody had an like idea, like they'd heard of Nellie Bly before, but you'd never heard of her. You are correct. I had never heard of her, but you have to remember, my historical interests do not lie in the states. I, the U.S. history bores the living daylights out of me normally. Also, my historical interests lie in four places. World War II, Tudor and Victorian eras. And Egypt. And, well, actually, I was going to say BCE, Iron Age period. So before the Common Era. So none of that falls under Nellie Bly. And it's not like she's mentioned in historical books in high school. No. Well, no, I, I read about her in elementary school around the same time I was familiar with Amelia Earhart. So she's her no, Amelia Earhart, I knew. But again, also, I don't know if you knew, I don't know how much you knew about the Tuskegee men, but when I was in middle school, my mom was like, you should write your essay about the Tuskegee men. And I was like, who the fuck is that? Yes, I know about the Tuskegee men. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was in middle school, that wasn't yet. Yeah, no, middle school, I knew who Amelia Earhart was. I didn't know who Nellie Bly was, and I didn't know about the Tuskegee men. Well, I was that weird person who read my hands on any book I could get a hold of. So, But I just found it really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever come across anyone who never heard of the name Nellie Bly. So I was really excited for you to get into her life. I'm all for that. But before we start, just a reminder. We have social media, Instagram and Facebook, History Explains It All underscore podcast. That's where we post about the episode of the week and three times a week. I try for three times a week. Sometimes I miss a day. I apologize. But three times a week, we have Today in History, Archaeology in the News, and Photo Fridays. Every Friday, I post a photo that Melissa or I took. I try to kind of go back and forth of historical objects places and anything like that that we personally took ourselves and give you a little blurb about that hope you're enjoying that that's a new thing that i'm trying to make sure stays on my radar and also email you want to hit us up history explains all at gmail.com let us know what you think give us give us a shout out give us a topic that you want us to do an episode on. We'd love to hear that. You can also put that in comments on the socials. Not the socials, but also wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we'd love it if you could leave us a rate and review. That way other people can find us. And we hope that you are enjoying this podcast so far because we enjoy doing it. Two history nerds with a microphone. That Maybe that should have been our alternate title. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Thank you. We can always rebrand if need be. <laughs> <laughs> but in that case, let's begin on Nellie Bly. She was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran on May 5th, 1864 in Cochran's Mill, Pennsylvania. The town of Cochran's Mill, well, I don't know if you know this, but it was founded by her father, Michael Cochran. Hence, Cochrane and Cochrane's Mill. She was born in the town her father founded. He was a judge and a landowner. Hence, her last, like I said, the last name of the town and her last name are the same. Her parents married after their previous spouses had died. And her father, with his previous wife, with his first wife, had 10. I repeat, 10 children that is horrifying to me that is way too many children that is way too many little rugrats running around i love kids i love my nieces and nephews 
I also love giving them back to their parents at the end of the day, saying, I hyped them up on sweets. Goodbye. Enjoy your sugar high child. Too many children. And with Nellie's mom, Mary Jane, he had five children with a total of 15 children. Again, too many children. My my concern isn't necessarily, I mean, it's a lot of children, even after two marriages. It's like getting the Brady Bunch times two or three. But that is a lot. I mean, well, 15 plus two is 17, given the parents. So, yeah, it's like the Brady Bunch times three. That is a lot of people to support and feed and clothe. Hence, he was a landowner, though. And a judge. And a judge. And he founded a town. When you're a landowner, you can live off of your own land, luckily, and sell some of what you make. Presuming you make something that like, doesn't get destroyed by weather and crop failures and that kind of stuff. Or animal diseases, sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Either way, I think they majorly survived off of the land. They were pretty well off. They actually were. When Nellie was six, Michael died. What's one of the most important things that you leave behind when you die? Oh, I know the answer to this question. Oh no, I'm gonna I'm still gonna let you answer it. A will. Guess what her father did not leave behind when he died? A way? A will. I was making a joke where there's a will, there's a way, but there's no will, there's no way. Yeah. I, I got a joke, got sorry. Joke. I got your joke, but he left no will behind with 15 children and a, a wife. So 16 people who relied on him now have to split a very large fortune, which imagine that split among 16 people. That's not a lot of money. It's also not a lot of land split between 16 people if you don't want to share it. Well, I can't imagine all of them would have been old enough to get anything anyway at that point because you have to be a certain age to get any kind of an inheritance. Um, they, they... But also, without writing a will, more often than not, either it goes to the eldest son in one form or another, or it reverts back to the husband's family in some cases, and yes. the wife is left with nothing. Exactly. So the family had no claim to the money or the house leaving them basically destitute. They ended up moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The mother, Mary Jane, she did end up remarrying. However, not long after her remarriage, she divorced. The man was abusive. I didn't find a name to who it was, but the man was an abusive person. He's also a persistent drunk. Yay! And when Nellie Bly was 15... She enrolled herself in the state normal school located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Yes, I did not know realize that there was a school called the State Normal School. It was like a finishing school for girls of sorts. Yep. Well, she wanted to get her degree and, and get a position in teaching. I was more interested that it was called Indiana, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Nellie ended up leaving school after about a year and a half of being enrolled in the school because she ran out of tuition money and she had to work in order to help support her family. And she would end up moving back to Pittsburgh to be with her family where she would help her mother run a boarding house. And that's majorly it for her young childhood early life. Yeah, there's not a whole lot. No. No, there isn't. Pretty much after that, there's a whole lot. In 1885, at about the age of 20, having worked with her mother in their boarding house for about four or five years at this point, Elizabeth Cochran, soon to be Nellie Bly, made her entrance into journalism and launched her very long career. Well, semi-long career. Or her famous career. To give kind of an idea Apparently, she had had a long-time dream of becoming a writer. I don't know about specifically a journalist, but she always enjoyed writing. 
Now, when she moved back to Pittsburgh, at the time, the city only had about 60,000 inhabitants, so it's pretty small compared to today, at least. But it had seven daily papers. It was a pretty hopping on the news. And the Pittsburgh Dispatch was one of the two morning papers. In 1885, Pittsburgh Dispatch recently published, had published a letter, uh, an anonymous letter, by a father who had five unmarried daughters and who signed it anxious father asking the paper for advice, like an advice column, which was very common. And there, the letter, the letter was addressed by the paper's columnist, the advice columnist called Erasmus Wilson. And he used his pen name, Quiet Observer, and answered the man back in his article. The article was titled, What Girls Are Good For? Not a great title. No. No, it's not. Well, um, no, what's in the article is even worse, but yeah. So in his response, Quiet Observer, or Erasmus Wilson, the columnist, writes back to anxious, to anxious father, Telling him that the woman's place is in the home, keeping the home for the husband, and that women are only good for birth and children. Rude. Uh, yeah, among more, more things. Um, Consider it. Yeah. It, it's an incredibly misogynistic response to a guy asking what to do with my five unmarried daughters. Mind you, it doesn't state, I don't think, how old the daughters were. They could have been 12 to 14, you know, 12, 14, 5, 12 to 17. Who knows? I don't know. But quite observer, it continues in his article, also saying that the part of working women within the letter that was addressed by Anxious Father writes that a working woman is, is a monstrosity. Women should not be allowed to work outside the home. Um, it is degrading to men for women to be working. And additionally, hopefully in jest, he also writes that the country should consider participating in China's female infanticide and do away with baby girls because they're kind of worthless. And yet without us, men don't exist because we give birth. Just... Anything you could say against women and women being able to support themselves in one fashion or another, this guy seemed to be completely against anything that allowed women to have freedom. But also, it very likely did not answer Anxious Father's query about what to do with his five unmarried daughters. But obviously, this response to this letter in this advice column, which was and the, the dispatch was a very well-read paper in the area caused major blowback with the women of the community of course it did and they received a flood of letters telling them how awful the advice columnist was and how horrible he was to women and all this just, they received a lot of blowback one of the letters the dispatch received regarding the article was from an anonymous writer calling herself lonely orphan girl and in this response letter she writes that she had quote spent the last four years in working class allegheny road houses and had met the poor young women so often were unable to find a good job now i don't have that letter because i wasn't able to get a hold of it but it is known that the letter very quickly actually impressed the managing editor, George Madden. And Madden then told Wilson, quote, she isn't much on style, but what she has to say, she said right out, regardless of paragraphs or punctuation. He actually put an ad in the paper calling for lonely orphan girl to respond to their inquiry, to give them their name, uh, give the paper her name and address so that they could find out who she is. Having read that paper, the date went out. Elizabeth Cochran showed up at the dispatch the following day. So instead of just answering it, she went directly to the source. Madden was not only impressed by her writing, impressed by her ferocity and 
defending women and their role in society, but also the fact that she just showed up. He offered her an opportunity to write a rebuttal for the paper to Wilson's column. And the article was actually called The Girl Puzzle. And I have some snippets from that one. So she writes, Can they that have full and plenty of this world's goods realize what it is to be a poor working woman abiding in one or two bare rooms without enough fire to keep warm while her threadbare clothes refuse to protect her from the wind and cold and denying herself necessary food that her little ones may not go hungry? Fearing the landlord's frown and threat to cast her out and sell what little she has, begging for employment of any kind that she may earn enough pay for the bare rooms that she calls home. No one to speak kindly to or encourage her, nothing to make worth living. If sin and the form of a man comes forward with a wily smile and says, fear no more, your debts shall be paid, she cannot let her children freeze or starve and so fails. She goes on to write, perhaps she had not the advantage of a good education, consequently cannot teach, or providing she is capable, the girl that needs it not half as much, but has great influential friends gets the preference. How many wealthy and great men could be pointed out who started in the depths, but where are the many women? Let a youth start as an errand boy and he will work his way up until he's one of the firm. Girls are just as smart, with a great deal quicker to learn. Why then can they not do the same? She's not wrong. Yep. And another excerpt from this article that she wrote as a rebuttal, she also is in most of the, like the first half of the article is kind of more about the wealthy women who don't understand what it means to be poor because socialites just socialize all day. For the most part, they don't actually work. And in that section, she writes about the, the wealthy women and says, tell the wealthy that these poor women read of what your last pug dog costs and think of what that vast sum would have done for them. Paid father's doctor bill, bought mother a new dress, shoes for the little one, and imagine how nice it could be for baby to have the beef tea that is made for your favorite pug or the care and kindness that is bestowed upon it. A little bit can go a long way for somebody. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes it's not even just money. Sometimes it's support. Emotional support can go a long way as well. A little encouragement can mean the world to a lot of people. It mean, it does, and it can, yeah. I completely agree. So impressed with her writing and the response from the community regarding her The Girl Puzzle article, Madden actually asked her to write another article, and that one was called Mad Marriages. And this would be the first time that she would write under her pen name, Nellie Bly. Mad Marriages was an article about the effects of divorce on women of the time, and in it she actually called for reforms of divorce laws, because women were not allowed to seek out divorces they weren't usually granted uh i i mean i mean i guess you can get sometimes you can get custody but women weren't allowed to really seek out divorces and they just didn't win a whole lot of these cases half the time because they're with the women it, it was a whole weird thing and all it depends on where you were in the country as well too it was weird but she's now running under the name of Nellie Fly, which will be her professional pen name from here on out. And Madden became more impressed with Fly after the success of her second article and then offered her full-time employment with the dispatch at about $5 a week in 1885, which comes out to roughly $153, a week. Not a lot, and it's better than nothing at all. Absolutely. Especially if she's, if she, I mean, her, she's living with her mom in the boarding house. And I think she's got a couple of brothers that she's living with too. And so she's helping to support the family, but she's not the only one able to support the family. So it's helpful. Over the next year or so, she would frequently write about the lives of working women because that's what she knew growing up mostly. 
and even began investigative articles about the plight of working women in local factories. And this is where she really shines. She is, I don't know if she's the first investigative journalist or even the first female investigative journalist in the U.S., but she is the most famous early female investigative journalist in the U.S. She would go into the factories and interview the girls there and write about working conditions there. And the dispatch was completely fine with that until the factories found out who she was and complained to the paper about her nosing around. They also said that they would pull their ads from the paper so the paper had to make a decision. And they demoted her, or at least relegated her, off of the investigative journalism and had her write about women's fashion because she was causing an uproar with the advertisers. Well, she's definitely not the type to do as she's told, within reason. And she just has this sort of sense of, I need to find the, the justice in the world and, and write about the injustice. And she became very restless and wanted to go out and, quote, do something no girl has done before, which is something that she wrote in her book. She then asked the paper to allow her to try something really outrageous for the time, to be a foreign correspondent in war-torn Mexico. Sounds terrible. Well, Mexico was also under a dictatorship at the time, and anyone that spoke out against the government or the dictator would typically be thrown in jail. Much like yeah. many, much like many dictatorships. Sounds terrible. Yeah. Well, they agreed to it, and she spent six months in Mexico learning the language, meeting the people, and writing about their customs, writing about their plight, writing about the poor, and put it all in her very first book, Six Months in Mexico. While she was there, not too long into her six-month stint, she protested against the imprisonment of a local journalist and spoke out against the government. And at the time, as I mentioned, it was under a dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. And they, they did not like that. And the government threatened her with arrest. So she had to flee and she went back to America, which once she was safely back in America, she went all out on the government and the dictatorship without fear of arrest. Go her. Now, upon arriving back in America, she wanted to continue to write and, and do investigative journalism, but decided not long after she moved back to Pittsburgh that she needed more than what the dispatch would offer her, also more than what the dispatch would allow her to do. Because it seemed like they didn't want her to cause trouble. Because when she moved back, she was back to relegating to writing about theater and fashion. So she decided that she was going to pack her bags, and in 1887, she moved up to New York, to New York City. But she found it really hard to gain employment up there, particularly as a female journalist, particularly as a good female journalist in terms of not writing about women's fashion. And unfortunately, found herself broke in just four months. New York ain't cheap. <laughs> Neither is L.A. Neither of them have ever been cheap. Yeah, not really. So the story goes that she's in New York City and she's going from paper to paper to paper trying to find a job. And in 1887, they're all like, yeah, we could use investigative journalists, but we don't want women. Or you're a woman, you can write about this if you want the job, but you can't write about this. Or they're just like, no, we don't have any place for women at the paper. Yeah, unfortunately, that was the thing at the time. So the story goes that not long, uh, around the four-month mark or so that she was there, she walked into the office, or she was able to talk her way into the office of Joseph Pulitzer, who at the time was running the New York World, the biggest paper in New York. Uh, if that last name sounds familiar, Pulitzer Prize. Joseph Pulitzer was to New York what first was to California, roughly. She got in and she had a specific topic in mind that she really wanted to write about. And she told him that she wanted to be posted as a journalist 
and write about the immigration into the U.S. and what it was like to immigrate into the U.S., go through Ellis Island, get jobs, all this kind of stuff that the immigrants have to go through. Because it's, it's definitely an ordeal no matter where you go. And Pulitzer really liked her ambition, but declined to Pulitzer to sort of the, the immigration topic that she wanted to do. Because he had something else in mind. He came up with a really good challenge for her. And one that there was some talk, like he's like, I think you should investigate this. Okay, let me, I'll just, we're going to get into it. I'm really excited for this one. So he is like, well, I, I don't need someone just to report on immigration. I've got something else that's even more important that needs investigating. I want you to go investigate Blackwell's Asylum, which was a very infamous asylum in New York City at the time. So Bly obviously jumped at the chance to take this, but it decided that instead of just investigating Blackwell's Asylum, which is hard enough to go and investigate anyway, she thought it would be best to infiltrate Blackwell's Asylum as a mental patient. That sounds insane. Talking about insane asylum, you gotta be insane to do it. That's why I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she wanted to infiltrate by pretending to be mad. And I will absolutely get into that. But before we talk about her infiltration of the asylum, I want to take a minute to talk about the history of Blackwell's Island because it goes by several names. So just in case anyone's not familiar with it and you look it up, you want, I, you'll know which part of New York City this is. So it's actually a strip of land in New York City's East River. A very long stretch of land, and it measures approximately two miles or 3.2 kilometers by 800 feet or 240 meters, and literally lies under the bridge between Manhattan and Long Island. And originally it was known as Hog Island and was purchased by Dutch Governor, and I'm going to butcher this, Wouter von Twiller in 1637. And he bought it from the Canarsie tribe, which was the local tribe in the area. And John Manning acquired the island when the Dutch surrendered to the English in 1664. And from then on, it was known as Manning's Island. Now, Manning's son-in-law, Robert Blackwell, gained the rights to the island 20 years later in 1684. And from the 1600s to the 1800s, it was owned by the Blackwells. And they lived on the island. So it was known for, as Blackwell's Island for a, quite a long time. In 1820, New York City actually bought the island from the Blackwells for around $32,000, which is approximately $790,000 today. And once they bought it, they erected a penitentiary on it about four years later. In 1839, the New York City Lunatic Asylum, also known as Blackwell's Asylum, was built on the island as well, including the Octagon Tower, which was the main focal point of the asylum. When the asylum opened, it quickly filled up with about 1,700 patients, double what it was actually built for. Common for any asylum anywhere. It's, oh, they're always overstuffed with patients and not enough staff. Additionally, Blackwell's Asylum was also New York City's first publicly funded mental hospital and the U.S.'s very first municipal mental hospital. In 1852, a workhouse was constructed for the prisoners by the prisoners of the penitentiary. And then a smallpox hospital was also opened on the island in 1856. So imagine this. You've got a penitentiary on this very small two-mile strip of island, a mental asylum, a workhouse, and a smallpox hospital. Too much. Yeah. And it's not, it's kind of like New York City's version of Alcatraz because 
you don't want to really swim through New York City's water. It's always quite cold. Now, in the 1890s, the patients of the asylum were actually transferred towards Island, which is also in New York City, with the patients from the hospital being transferred to the asylum. The asylum was then renamed Metropolitan Hospital. So now, as of 1890, the 1890s, there was no longer an asylum on the Blackwell's Island. By 1935, all of the inmates in the penitentiary had been moved to Rikers Island, which I don't know if that was any better. <laughs> Rikers is also very infamous for um, not being good. It's like Sing Sing. Blackwell's then soon took the name of Welfare Island in the 30s. And today it goes by Roosevelt Island. So it's got a lot of different names. Now, in terms of an asylum, as I mentioned, when it opened, it held around 1,700 patients. Originally built with the means of keeping the patients organized and healthy, but due to money constraints, it never actually happened. It was also never fully built to the design that they wanted to. They didn't even necessarily want a Kirkbride design. It went downhill pretty quickly. And in addition, the convicts from the nearby penitentiary, again, on the same island, were often used as guards at the mental asylum, which was usually housed for female mental patients. That doesn't sound like a good combination. No. Well, at least there was a female ward of Blackwell's asylum. I don't know if it was all mental or all, all female, but there was definitely a female section of the asylum. Now, Thomas Kirkbride, who is known for his Kirkbride design of mental asylums, he actually describes in, in regards to the money constraints and the lack of funding and the just and an inadequacies of helping the patients that the asylum was originally supposed to be built for. He specifically said patients were abandoned to the tender mercies of thieves and prostitutes. Well, we'll get into it. And I don't get specific, I get specific, but not in-depth specific. Because this is about Nellie Bly, not Blackwell's Asylum specifically. But if you know anything, and I will get into it in just a second. But if you know anything about particularly Victorian mental asylums, there was probably not a single good one out there that was not over, overstuffed with patients and understaffed and hardly ever had anyone there that wasn't necessarily sadistic. Even, not even just the mental asylums, the TB wards and stuff too. Waverly Sanatorium, I mean, a lot of these places, not even just that, I mean, it, it, I just, I, don't even get me started on the ill treatment of people who cannot fend for themselves, particularly in the 1880s to 1890s in America. Don't even get me started. We did a lot of mistreatment in that time. Uh, we still do today. I was about to say, and still do. I mean, it's been going on for a very long time. But in particular, you just have very large buildings, publicly funded, and that's where you just shove people. I mean, for like with Blackwells, people who were told... Like somebody who wanted to go to the poorhouse because they were too poor to, because they just couldn't work. And they were people who were either like overworked, who wanted to take a break, were like, I'll go to the poorhouse. I'll spend some time at the poorhouse. It'll be fine. But you had to be examined by a doctor or something like that in some cases to get sent to the poorhouse. And they're like, oh, you're not poor. You're just destitute and lazy. Off to the asylum with you. And then, of course, according to Nellie Bly's uh, book, 10 Days in the Madhouse, which I highly recommend, and it's going to be in your source notes because you can't go online and read it for free. I've read it several times. It's worth reading. According to her report and the people that she interacted with, including the doctors leading up to being, uh, uh, leading up to her incarceration, essentially, 
and Blackwell's Asylum and the time that she's in there, none of the doctors, let alone the nurses there, cared about anybody there except themselves. And that is something that you see a very common theme in a lot of these places. So in terms of the asylum, the papers in the city would often write about its decrepitness, the ill treatment, wrongful confinement, which was for a lot of the people there, and many more of the wrongdoings that were going on inside. And this is where we find Nellie Bly in 1887 when she approached Joseph Pulitzer at the New York World for a job. Though Pulitzer liked the idea of Bly infiltrating Blackwell's asylum, he was quite concerned for her given the state of Blackwell's asylum and the, the, the stories they've heard from it and told her that if this is what you want to do, I'm all for it. But once you get in, it's going to be, it, it may be a bit hard for us to get you out. So Bly told him that she was up for it, understood the safety issues involved, and said, I'm going to go do it anyway. Uh, I really, this is definitely something that needs to get done. And as I wrote in my notes, there is a list, and I think we can maybe post a picture of it. I've sent this to Lauren before. Give you an you could be sent to an assailant time before. Let's see. Kicked in the head by a horse, hysteria, jealousy and religion, laziness novel reading parents were cousins some weird stuff in here politics which means every politician should be in a mental asylum asthma could apparently put you in the west virginia hospital trans allegheny lunatic asylum not sure how that works bad whiskey apparently desertion by your husband uh-huh how does that one even make sense if you're a female, you can't work. And if you can't work, what's the point? So it puts you in a mental asylum, puts you away. Pretty much, yeah. Um, grief could put you in a mental asylum. Women's troubles. About half of these are just about women. Um, fighting a fire somehow makes it on this list. I'm not sure. Exposure in the army could put you in a mental asylum. There was one really fun one on here. Hold on, where are you? Smallpox could put you in a mental asylum, even though it's a medical disease. The Salvation Army, there we go. The Salvation Army could put you in a trans-allegating lunatic <laughs> <laughs> Ah, ah, this stuff is just, uh, it'll be posted. It'll be posted. This is probably the only laugh we'll get out of this today. Okay, so now for Bly, the hardest part for this expose was for her to actually get inside. No small feat. A seemingly impossible thing, particularly if you had to act mad. So she started out the booking room at the Temporary Homes for Women boarding house. She stayed up all night, and there's a lot more information in her book. And this, she said, was to give her a disheveled look. And then she went around the boarding house, accusing uh, the others being there of being insane and saying that the whole place is full of crazy people. And she's acting really kind of odd. And she even reported to the matron of the boarding house, there are so many people crazy about it, you can never tell what they'll do. So at one point, the matron told her when everyone was supposed to go to bed, go to bed. She refused. And even after consistent requests. Now, technically, yes, but according to her book, so she, she went to bed, but she stayed up all night. And then, so essentially, she just got to a point with her behavior that, and the reason that she specifically chose a women's boarding house was that if she went to a normal boarding house with other, with men there, the the men might choose to take her just to the police for something or just put her in solitary or something so she wouldn't be able to get to blackwell's with that but she realized that if she was just necessarily in a old women's only boarding house the women would have to call for a police officer because if she scared them enough and they would get spooked pretty quickly if she acted crazy then if she acted crazy then they might more likely send her to the asylum. The entire time that she's there, she's just acting odd. She's not necessarily acting scary, but scary for 1887. And all the while, she's just pretending that though she knows her name, she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't, she knows where she's from. She claims that she's from Cuba. Remember, she spent six months in Mexico so she can speak Spanish. She claims that she's from Cuba. She's just looking for her trunks 
for her clothing and everything that she's supposed to have with her. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know how she got to New York. She doesn't even know that she's in New York. She's just like, I want my effects. I want my trunks. My name is Nellie Brown. And it just, her behavior got to a point where she's like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to scare people. I'm just going to make them need to take me away. So it got to the point where the police were called. They took it to a nearby courthouse and she was examined by an officer, a judge, and then some doctors. The judge considered some foul play and said that she should be taken care of. You know, he didn't specifically say send her to Blackwell. He's like, take her to Bellevue, have her examined by some of the doctors, but treat her kindly. But he believes that she actually had been drugged and brought to New York against her will because so, she didn't know where she was or how she got there. And the entire time, she's like, where are my bags? Where are my bags? I don't know where my stuff is. And the major believed that she was crazy. The judge believed that she was drugged. So they took her to Bellevue Hospital for examination. The doctors there were checking her out and told her that she was crazy and told her that she needed to, they're like, we're going to, we're going to take you over here. We're going to take you to this place. We're going to go find your stuff. We're going to find your stuff. And then they put her on a boat. Like, you're going to go to the insane asylum, sweetie. You, nobody knows that you're here. Off to the insane asylum with you. Nobody cares about you. While she's in Blackwell's, among with many other people who were wrongfully confined, again, read the book, I highly recommend it, every food that she was given to eat had something not edible about it. If it was just not cooked fully properly, it was rotten, gross. Um, sheets were made of wool. They were often too short. They made the patients bathe in ice, ice baths. So they were constantly cold already because it's cold in Blackwell's. There's no heating. They're in short cotton tunics, no socks. They're given straw pillows, an uncomfortable cot to sleep on, wool sheets that are too short, ice baths are usually sent to bed soaking wet in ice. And the demeanor of many of the nurses, according to Nell's, Nellie Bly's report, were very sadistic. And majority of the comments from her books have the nurses stating, saying, this is a place of charity. Take what you're given or you get nothing. Don't expect any kindness here because you won't be getting any. So almost every day that she was there, her day was more or less spent sitting among about 40 women. And depending on which hall she was in, she's either in hall six or seven, depending on what time during the week that she was there. So like 40 women in her hall, cold, hard benches in a hallway from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. No one's allowed to sit relaxed, so you can't just lean back or anything. You're not allowed to get up and walk to relieve any stiffness. You can't talk. You can't read. You can't write. You can't really do anything but just sit and stare. And if you try to get up and walk, the nurses put you back down. If you get anxious or need to get up or anything, the nurses will even sit on you to make sure you didn't move. According to her report, any and all foods given to them, as I mentioned, were inedible. But after two days of not eating, because she just couldn't eat the rotten food, hunger took over and cheat anyway. And if anyone got sick off of the food and went to go throw up, they would get admonished by the nurses and then be forced to continue eating the food that made them vomit in the first place. She said that we ate cold boiled potatoes, spoiled meat, cold soup, cold tea, nothing with flavor or seasoning, nothing with salt. And at times on our walks, we were even taken past the kitchen where we saw the foods for the doctors and nurses, melons, grapes, and other fruits, white bread, nice meats, and much more. None of that were given to the patients. When anyone complained about the food, nurses told them that they needed to shut up and it was more than charity patients deserved. There was a constant verbal abuse by the nurses whom they interacted with more, much more than the doctors. Doctors barely even said hello to them and then charged them with being unruly, even though they only spoke like five words in them the entire day. But the nurses were also excessively physically violent with a lot of the patients there too. I won't go into it specifically. It's in Ellie Bly's book. Uh, but many of the patients would complain of how cold Blackwell's was because again, it's all stone and concrete and there's no heating. They say we don't turn anything on until October. It's not October. They weren't given sufficient clothing. They were told, here's a shawl. 
which would have probably been worn by dozens of women. So it's probably like threadbare and moth-ridden. And go have a walk. Go walk up and down the hall. Try to warm yourself with this shawl that's not going to do anything for you. They were consistently in states of dehydration. They would also often ask for water and not given any. And it was just literal hell. And most of the women that were there, and particularly according to, I mean, we know this from records, but also in Nellie Bly's book, majority of the women that were sent there would never leave. Even if someone came to get them, there were rules about how many doctors you'd have to, have to sign off on papers and stuff. And, but people were sent there, women were, they were talking about the women's ward specifically. Women were sent there because they could barely speak any English. Women were sent there because they happened to just get in like the wrong place, wrong time, and were sent to Blackwell's. Women who had really no business being in there that were just poor and destitute looking for a job were sent to Blackwell's and likely never made it out alive. Blackwell's was notorious for its utter abuse and neglect. She knew that she was going to be there for some time. I think she expected to be there for maybe about a week. She was there for about 10 days. So the world was, they, they tried to get out a little earlier, but she told them like, I've only been here only like three days. Give me a little more time. So they were able to secure her release after 10 days. And 10 days was definitely more than enough for Nellie Bly. And soon after her release, she printed her experience, 10 Days in the Madhouse, and it caused an absolute uproar in New York City. And so much so, a grand jury was even convened to look into the situation. And then the grand jury even recommended that commissioners and safety officers be sent to the asylum to look into conditions there and to take Nellie Bly with them. The expose caused the asylum to eventually implement many reforms, and this particular case was rewarded with a $1 million prize, I don't know what to call it, um, to be put towards the treatment of the patients at Blackwell's. However, though, not long afterwards, the asylum would actually close its doors to the mental patients, which were moved towards Ireland in 1892. But this expose also gained her the moniker stunt girl journalism, which was usually used in a derogatory manner by the male journalists. However, for the women who were wanting to get into the field, this was their way in, showing that, quote, as a class, they had the skills necessary for the highest level of general reporting. The stunt girls, with Bly as their prototype, were the first women to enter the journalistic mainstream in the 20th century. Donnelly Bly. Oh, we're not done with her story yet. You've got something fun coming up. I think you mean now. Yes. So after Nellie Bly's stint in the insane asylum, she also did another kind of kooky thing and she got permission she got the okay to travel around the world in order to beat Jules Verne's character Phileas Fogg who traveled around the world in 80 days hence the book's name Around the World in 80 Days yeah I love this story and she she got the go ahead to do it she, and she actually completed her travel around the world in 72 days she beat phileas fogg by eight days reminder phileas fogg doesn't actually exist <laughs> and she traveled by all sorts of manner including boat rickshaw horse buggy carriage all of the above train all of that. And at the time she was working for the World, which was the name of the newspaper. During her journey, they actually invited people to enter guesses on how long it would take her to get around the world. 
whichever guest was the closest would win a trip to Europe. At the end, she did end up writing a book on it, which became a a big hit. Uh, guess guess what her book's title was? Around the World in 72 Days? Yeah, Nellie Bly's book, Around the World in 72 Days. <laughs> she wrote it in the year 1890. Her 72-trip day was actually a world record. However, her world record only lasted about a few about two to three months as that same year her record was beat by five days george francis train a businessman completed a trip around the world in 67 days got anything to add before i move on i'm sure you do not specifically okay what else you have in the story because there's still so much more Please, I don't have much more because, again, I didn't read her book. You don't even have to read the book. There's still so much more out there Just you'll get from just general articles. Do you know how many articles I read and I still didn't get more than that? You didn't, you didn't read anything about that she spent like three or four days with Jules Verne in France and no. his family? You didn't talk about Elizabeth Flyson and how she was competing with Nellie Bly? No. Nothing about Nellie Bly? Oh. None of that popped up in any of my information. Well, I've also read her book. <laughs> That's my point. You, I read the book about eight years ago. But, no, okay. Of course you did, because you remember all this stuff. I like Nellie Bly. What can I say? Yeah, so uh, it, it's, for most of the trip, she was actually by herself, which was, in of itself, cause for sensationalism. And everywhere she went, she would drop off telegrams letting people know where she was. So people literally, I think the Daily World actually had, I could be correct or or incorrect on this, but I believe they actually had a world map in their office and would actually mark based off the telegrams that were coming in and the the things that she was writing about where she was because they would post it because it it was a series that was ongoing. But the most important thing about everything that she was doing with this is that she was in competition with a woman named, I believe it was Elizabeth Lysand. And she worked for a competing newspaper in New York City. Because once, I don't know if one of the two had heard that the other one was planning on doing this. And the papers found out and said, we should have a competition. Bly left the U.S. first. Wait, okay. Sorry, it's been a while. One, pardon me, I did not research this section because it wasn't my section. I believe Bly left the U.S. first to get to Europe. She left from, obviously, the Atlantic coast and went straight to Europe. And Bly sent, left, I think, three days later because she had some issues about getting on board the ship. So her trip was delayed by about two to three days, which I think was partly the reason it cost her the competition but because she wanted because Bly wanted to attempt this essentially stunt girl journalism if you will and also because it was in reference to around the world in 80 days by Jules Verne whom she was a fan of she was actually invited by Jules Verne to come visit his home in France and she spent two or three days there and and met him, met his wife, met the family, and had dinner with him and stuff. That was that was I mean that would have been just enough I think for her. But she would go on. She would obviously send telegrams out, and at, at like the two competing newspapers would keep track of where their girl was around Europe, and they would tell they would send them money if they needed money. They would send out reports. The reports would be in the newspapers. It was written about everything. Something came out. People were checking it out. And as Lauren mentioned, that there was a competition. And people were putting in guesses of how long it would take. But most of, the, most of what they were doing was also, as I mentioned, solo. They were women traveling throughout Europe, through the entire northern hemisphere, at least, mm-hmm. alone, for the most part. 
unheard of of the time too. Abs- well, absolutely unheard of for the time. But you're, I mean, it's not like you're just going through England. You're going through England and France and Europe, and then you're going into Asia uh, by yourself. And then I, I think she just took a train. Well, planes were things. So she had to take a boat. <laughs> I don't remember her last leg of the journey, but I know that she made it out, and I she's some she made it back to the U.S. But do you have any information about what happened when she returned to New York City once she came home? There wasn't much about her return outside of the fact that, uh, and I read five articles, by the way, on just Nellie Bly alone. There wasn't much on the fact that she, after her return outside of, she lost her record a couple months later to the businessman train george francis train yes when she arrived back in new york city because not only was it did not be because again between her and elizabeth blyson she beat blyson i think it was actually close to a week because i think her competition kept getting waylaid but again it's been a while i did not research this section but i I remember that obviously bly showed up first and when she arrived back in new york it was for lack of a better word a madhouse good word in there thank you uh, there were ticket tape parades there was i think she's there was there was just a whole lot of celebration it's basically a copy of the book uh, the end of the book around the world in 80 days was there so, a big celebration pretty sure oh uh, to me it, it was kind of like that ticker tape parade celebration like when Lindbergh came home after crossing the the Atlantic or after Earhart came back after crossing the Atlantic. That's where my brain kind of went with that. A lot of publicity, but she didn't last long in journalism after this. No, not at all. Because that was in 1889 to 1890. And she actually married in 1895 a man named robert seaman <laughs> your face yeah this is an odd one she also uh in the interim years she also retired from newspaper writing and began writing novels interesting because my information said around her marriage is the same time she retired around 1895 Oh, okay. I know it's Maybe 1894. Oh, okay. It just said around her marriage time, so it could be anywhere within the year. There. Uh, what's interesting is that Robert Seaman, by the way, she's 30 years old when she marries him. He's in his 70s. Yeah, he's 72. He's 40 years her senior. Yeah. And he's a millionaire. He's wealthy. Man owns a couple of companies. He's an iron magnet, I think it was. Yes. Yes, you are correct. Uh, Nine years after their marriage in 1894, Robert passed away. 1904? Unless I did my math wrong, and that's not... And that's nine years later. From she 18... married in 1895. 1895. Now do 1895 plus five. That's 1900. Add on four years. That's 1904. He said 1894. Oh, I thought he said 1904. Yeah. Wow, what a ding-dong am I. (laughs) Brain and eyes and mouth not working together. In 1904, he died. And she took on his business, the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. And while she was head of that company, they actually patented quite a few manufacturing items including a 55 steel gallon drum which was created while she was head of the factory and we basically use the same drum today there have been a few modifications since the time but yeah over 100 years later and we're still using the same old 55 gallon drum that was created at the company that Nellie Bly was head of while she was the 
head of the company, she began social reforms. She began social reforms within the company and a lot of her employees ended up receiving things that most wouldn't even think of like health benefits. What? Health benefits weren't a thing at this point? No, no, they weren't. It's hard enough to get a full-time job with health benefits now. Why would you think it was a thing back then? It was great for the employees. However, all of the things that she did, she also included gym memberships and stuff. Yeah, it's a little odd one. Recreation rooms. I guess maybe to keep everyone in a great mindset and healthy. I don't really know. Well, I totally get it. Continue, though, because I, I have a little bit at the end. I want to have a little thought. Well, while it was great that she did that, it cost her quite a bit of money. And she ended up having to return to journalism, and she started to work for the New York Evening Journal. Another thing was that employees actually would commit fraud against her, and she was the victim. So, nice of them after everything she did for them. Especially in those times. And she did end up having to declare bankruptcy. After her return to journalism, she would cover stories pertaining to World War I, including going to the front lines of World War I. She went across the ocean. And, of course, fo- she also focused on women's, women's rights and issues. She died on January 27th, 1922, due to pneumonia. She caught pneumonia and died. And... I actually have her obituary, which I'm going to read. And the title is Nellie Bly, Journalist Dies of Pneumonia. And this was by the New York Times on January 28th, 1922. Quote, Mrs. Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, known to thousands of people throughout the world as Nellie Bly, her nom de plume, died yesterday morning at the of pneumonia at the age of 57 in St. Mark's Hospital, to which she was removed a few days ago from her rooms in the Hotel McAlpin. Services will be held at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon at the Church of the Ascension, 5th Avenue and 10th Street. Friends may view the body today at the funeral parlors of Herbert H. Baxter, 597 Lexington Avenue. Born at Cochrane Mills, Pennsylvania, a town founded by her father, Judge Cochrane, Elizabeth Cochrane found herself penniless when still in her, in her teens and began her journalistic career writing for a Pittsburgh paper at $5 a week. Later, she reached a high water mark of $25,000 earned with her pen in one year. She went down to the sea in a diving bell and up in the air in a balloon and lived in an insane asylum as a patient. But the feat that made her famous was her trip around the world in 1889 she was sent by the world to beat the mark of phileas fogg jules burns hero of around the world in 80 days and she succeeded making the tour in 72 days six hours and 11 minutes everyone who read newspapers followed her progress and she landed in new york a national character in 1895 she married robert l seaman 40 years her senior president of the American Steel Barrel Company and the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. They lived happily together at 15 West 37th Street on on Mr. Seaman's death in 1910. I guess it was 1910. She took entire charge of the properties. Luck turned against her, however, and a series of forgeries by her employees, disputes of various sorts, bankruptcy and a mass of vexations and costly litigations swallowed up Nellie Bly's fortune. Her courage and liveliness remained, however, and she returned to journalism with her old spirit. At the time of her death, she was a member of the staff of the New York Evening Journal. End quote. And that is Nellie Bly's obituary. Shall we end it here, or did you have a question? No, I didn't have any questions. Um, I was more, I was more curious about the modifications or reforms that she was trying to do at the factory i wonder because she didn't hold on to it for very long i mean not including the embezzlement and i don't know how much that wasn't true it's quite a bit but 
I, I kind of wonder if she tried to do the reforms all at once rather than slowly implement them and see how it works and make the money. Because she did a lot of reforms for the workers, which is great. But you can't do everything all at once. It doesn't say. There's nothing I came across that said that one way or the other. I'm just wondering if maybe she did that and that also led to the bankruptcy. It could be. I'm not sure. Nothing specified when she instituted the reforms for me either. But the fact that she was very progressive, I liked. Unfortunately, she was taken advantage of by employees whom it turns out she treated pretty darn well, according to what we know. Well, the people that probably embezzled were the people that were probably handling the treasury. Or I can call it treasury, like, like it's a, I mean, it's a business, but people in charge of the money were probably the ones embezzling. They were probably, probably embezzling before she even got control of the company. Probably it just made it easier. Yeah. Because she, she never knew business. She didn't have a head for business. I don't know that she would have even been successful had somebody not been embezzling. So. But I did come across that after the bankruptcy, in order to sort of, um, she fled to England and lived there for some time in order to flee the debtors. And that was also around the same time that World War I broke out. But when she did work for the Evening Journal as a war correspondent in World War I, she was in Czechoslovakia and Serbia, right where it happened, ish ish i mean that was definitely a location i mean it was called world war one well um, yes but i'm thinking where ferdinand was assassinated oh know. i think okay. it was specifically in serbia but there was a lot of originally a lot of fighting in serbia and then she ended up actually coming back to america in around 1919 just after the war because her mother was dying and then she caught pneumonia not long I don't know, a lot long after, but, um, but her mom was dying. She came to take care of her mom, and then she passed away about three years later. Yep. But I don't have anything else. Anything else for you? I, I, see, as, as somebody who had never heard of Nellie Bly before doing the research, what do you think? Quite a fascinating person. Go her. Still not my favorite subject as American history. Sorry, I, I like Nellie Bly a lot, but it's, <laughs> I just find other people fascinating. Don't don't kill me. You like people older. I get it. I like mummified people. <laughs> you like dead people. <laughs> like very, very well, dead. She's dead too. As I mentioned, she's dead you like, too. I'm pretty sure. You like the I very, like, very dead. Did I you like, like I was gonna say at this point I like people that have been dead for almost twenty five hundred years, okay? <laughs> Maybe a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I think that'll do for uh, this episode of History Explains It All. And uh, we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.